Good morning. My name is Brad. This is my wife, Lisa, daughter, Brianne, and granddaughter, Lucy. This is Lucy's first Christmas. Today is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. As we prepare for Christmas and long for Jesus' return, we light this candle as a symbol of your love displayed in Jesus. He is the light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. May it remind us of your love for us and cause to love you, our neighbors and even our enemies, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. It is not because you were greater than all the others, people that the Lord loved you and chose you. In fact, you were the smallest of the peoples. No, it is because the Lord loved you and because he kept the solemn pledge he swore to your ancestors that the Lord brought you out with a strong hand and saved you from the house of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, Egypt's king. Know now then that the Lord your God is the only true God. He is the faithful God who keeps the covenant and proves loyal to everyone who loves him and keeps his commandments, even to the thousands of generations. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fulfillment of the time came, God sent his son born through a woman and born under the law. This was so he could redeem those under the law so that we could be adopted. Because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if you are his child, then you are also an heir through God. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading in Matthew 2, 19 through 23. After King Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who were trying to kill the child are dead. Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus ruled over Judea in the place where of his father Jared, uh, Herod, Joseph, took, uh, Joseph was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he went to the area of Galilee. He settled in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken to the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called Nazarene. The Gospel of our Lord. As we pray this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God of love, on this Sunday as we open up your scriptures, as we listen to your word, as we turn our ears toward your voice, would you reawaken us to the love of God? 
Would you cause the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts by Christ Jesus in a way that transforms us from the inside out. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. And all of you who are visiting, you're in town already for the holidays. You've made your journey from uh, wherever to be here with family. Thank you so much for joining us this uh, this morning as you've uh, traveled in. I know some of you actually are just on the front end. You're getting ready to leave, either right after service or maybe tomorrow morning, getting ready to travel out. We pray that you have a safe uh, trip and wonderful holidays. For those of you who are here, though, we get to have Christmas Eve here in Palmer Auditorium at 4 and 6. We've been calling it our first Christmas Eve. It's technically our second. We had one back in 2012, but there's only 12 people that remember that. So we have been calling it like our our first because it's been nine years. So I think you can sort of reset uh, the clock at this point. But during this time of year, it's really common for us to travel long distances uh, or even short distances to be with family. Uh, to be with those that we are related to in some capacity. And it's not uncommon at those uh, family dinner tables or afterwards as people are washing dishes or during the uh, opening of presents to hear phrases like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That as we bump up against those that we are biologically related to, these kind of comparisons start to be made, that we make observations about the way a child resembles their mom or their dad or grandma or grandpa or uncle, someone that they're related to. We make these comparisons. If we don't like that one, then we use like they're a chip off the old block or like mother, like daughter, like father, like son. And we make all these comparisons. When we're little, we make those comparisons about physical characteristics. Like people like to come up to little babies and look at them really like uncomfortably close in the face and say, oh, they have grandma's lips or she has Aunt Jenny's nose. And I've got to be honest, in every single one of those conversations, I have no clue what anybody's talking about. I'm like, how can you tell this? Like, I just cannot make the connections between like a 60-year-old's nose and a six-day-old's nose. Like, I, I can't make, so I just nod. I'm like, yeah. And I, I laugh internally when someone comes up and says, oh, they look like so-and-so. Like, someone will come up to our kids and say, oh, they look so much like you. And the next person comes up and says, oh, they look so much like their mom. <laughs> like, none of us are seeing the same thing here, are we? As I just chuckle along in the middle, except in moments where it gets a little scary for me. Before service, the first service, Tracy saw two of my my daughters, my middle my middle daughter and my youngest daughter, and she said, "Man, they're growing up, and they look more and more like you." And so I'm inviting all of you to pray um, <laughs> that they will look more and more like their mother as uh, as time goes on from here. Uh, But outside of the physical characteristics, as we grow older, we actually start making comparisons, not so much about physiological things or physical things, but we start making comments about mannerisms or behavior, 
or the way that someone talks or the way they interact with other people or their skills or their talents or interests. We start using phrases like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree when we start to see these things replicated in families. They shift from the things that we can't do anything about, like my hairline and my cowlick. I can't do anything about those things uh, to shifting to other things that are nurtured in us by our family of origin. And there are times for us when when those kind of observations get made that just feels like a compliment. That if you come from a family that uh, you, you have this sense of affection and love and there's some health there in the family and those kind of conversations get made, there's a, there's a, a, a sense of like, yes, like I want to be like my grandma. I want to be like my grandpa. I want to follow the example set by my mom or my dad. But there's for others of us, those things can be troubling. And remember in the midst of my parents' divorce when I was a teenager, that when people would make comparisons between my dad and I, uh, I would just, I, it was so difficult for me. I didn't want to be associated in any way uh, with him, and yet I'm his son. And there are things there that are common and things that we have connections around. Part of the healing actual process for many of us that have that family of origin sort of story, or maybe our family of origin is difficult, part of the healing process is accepting the gifts and differentiating from the difficulties about being able to say, like, these are the good things that I learned. These are the good things that I inherited. These are the things that were nurtured in me that I'm so grateful for. And yet these other things that happen, I'm trying to learn to live in a new way. I'm trying to not replicate that beyond this generation. That's actually part of our discipleship, is being able to name those things and learn a new way of living in the new family of Jesus. For those of you who have taken our Emotionally Healthy Relationships class, that's a lot of what it is. It's recognizing things that we inherited from our family of origin and then learning how to differentiate and and work to live in new ways. Because what naturally happens for us is that what is modeled for us is replicated by us then whatever we see modeled becomes the pattern by which we sort of pattern our lives after. And the same actually works the other direction as well. Then what we model, others will replicate. Whether that is if you're married and you have kids, those who come after you or grow up in your home, or it's in your friendship circles, if you have a particular amount of influence, the way that you live your life gets replicated in some way. If you have some uh, authority in your workplace, those things get replicated in your neighborhood. All kinds of places that we have influence that what we model also gets replicated. In other words, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This is our fourth and final Sunday of Advent. For those of you who have never heard the term Advent before, it's not another name for Christmas. It's a whole separate season where we're preparing our hearts to celebrate Christmas. The word Advent means coming. Particularly, it's a word that indicates the coming of a king. And so we're preparing our hearts to celebrate the coming of King Jesus into the world. And during the last couple of weeks, what we've been looking at is that the arrival of Jesus in the opening passages of Matthew actually puts us into a conflict between two kingdoms. That Jesus coming as the king of the Jews, Jesus coming as the king of the world, he comes into a world where there's already a king a man named Herod. And we see Matthew's intentionally throughout his gospel showing the difference between the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of Jesus. So we've been contrasting these two. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Glenn 
contrasted that Herod's ascent to power, how he was clawing his way to the top, kind of pushing everyone down in order to get to the top of the mountain, sort of king of the hill sort of story for him. And yet Jesus is the one whose rise was actually a descent, who humbled himself and came to this place to rescue us, humbled himself even to death on a cross. Then last week, we talked about the different, way, the different ways that Herod and Jesus use power and the way that impacts particularly the marginalized, those who find themselves at the edge of any sort of kingdom, the way that a ruler's reign impacts those. And we saw how Herod's power was consistently exploiting and hurting others, but Jesus was going after the marginalized to use his power and influence to bring them into the center. Today, we're going to continue to contrast their two kingdoms by looking at what their kingdoms produce, or more specifically, what they reproduce, especially in their progeny. That Herod is not the only Herod that we know. We actually, as we look through the gospel, we learn about Herod's sons. And what we see with Herod's sons is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And yet we see in Jesus, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree either. How he puts on display the Father of God and invites us as those who've been adopted, who've been made heirs, who are also called children of God, that the apple is not meant to fall far from the tree in our lives as well. We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, we'll have everything on the screen. Just a little refresher before we enter into this passage. After Jesus was born and the wise men let King Herod know that there had been a king of the Jews who'd been born, he ordered the slaughter of all males in that area under the age of two. But in a dream, God warned Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt. So we're picking up the story there. King Herod is still reigning in Israel. Joseph and Mary and Jesus find themselves in Egypt. And it says this, Matthew 2, 19, after King Herod died, an angel from the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, who was in Egypt, and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So after King Herod died, what happened was that his kingdom was divided up between three of his sons. He had 15 kids between his marriages, 10 marriages, 15 kids, 20 grandkids, but he executed three of his eldest sons in the midst of sort of the power struggle that he was amidst, not only externally, but internally in his own family. So then he had three sons that he left his kingdom to, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip, all who get named in Matthew. But we see in their lives is that Herod's ways get perpetuated in their own lives. We start to see how they actually just follow in the way of their fathers. So verse 21, Joseph got up. And he took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus ruled over Judea in the place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he instead went to the area of Galilee, and he settled in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, that he will be called 
a Nazarene. So Archelaus, the son, actually inherits about half of Herod's kingdom, including the area of Judea around Jerusalem. And what we see in his story is that the apple indeed did not fall far from the tree, that he reigned through violence. Just like his father, violence and the threat of violence marked the way that he ruled. In fact, shortly after he took over, there was an uprising, a riot that took place at Passover, and he immediately comes in with a heavy hand, some extreme brutality, and squelches this. He is so bad that after 10 years, the emperor of Rome actually banishes him for excessive brutality. Now think about that for a second. (laughs) When the Roman emperor thinks you're a bit too harsh, (laughs) that's saying something about actually how violent this guy was. No wonder Joseph was afraid to go there. No wonder that God would graciously warn him to not go to that place. God does this. Once again, he warns Joseph in a dream. So Joseph returns and resettles in the land of Galilee rather than in Judea. And Matthew says that this act actually fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. This is one of several references in Matthew to fulfillment. Over and over and over and over again, Matthew is saying, this happened and it fulfilled this. This happened and it fulfilled this. God did this and it fulfilled the promise that he made, the word that he spoke through the prophets. This happens especially around the birth of Jesus. And what Matthew wants to say, wants us to see is that all of these instances are examples of God's faithfulness. They're examples of a God who keeps his promises. They're examples of a God whose word can be trusted. This was our Old Testament reading that God is the one who keeps his solemn pledge, whose steadfast love, whose covenant faithfulness extends to a thousand generations. That God is the God whose word can be trusted. The Hebrew writer picks up on this and says that every promise that God has ever made is yes and amen in Jesus. That God is fulfilling all of the promises that he ever made to people in and through the coming of his son, Jesus. And this contrast begins to emerge then between these two parties that we see the Herods, Herod and his kids. They produce fear in order to keep power. But God and his son keep his promises in order to produce trust. That Herod reigns by producing fear inside of people in order to keep power, but God keeps his promises in order to produce trust. The way of Herod and his sons relies on violence, relies on the threats of force. Herod and his sons are constantly using intimidation. They're trying to create anxiety. They're exercising their power in ways that actually cost others something. They're exercising their power in ways that creates fear all around them. And we all know this way of leading. We all know this way of being. This isn't something that just happened once a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away with a person named Herod. We experience this maybe for the first time on the playgrounds where we find the one person who seems to be exceptionally good at something, who turns their resource, turns their influence, turns their power into a way to put others down. 
They take on that place of the schoolyard bully, causing some of us to say, I'd rather just stay inside and do more math than go out and play kickball. And unfortunately, it doesn't just stop there. That we see this taking place in the boardroom. We see it taking place in politics. We see it taking place in school board meetings. And on and on and on it goes. People thinking about the power they have and how they can leverage it against others. How they can keep people in control through a threat of fear and violence. But the way of God and the way of his son rests not on violence, but on faithfulness on loyalty, on promise-keeping, on being the one whose word can be trusted, the one who does what he says he's going to do, and everything that he says and everything that he does is for the benefit of others. It's for the benefit of those who have come under his reign. Everything he does, he does to protect, to promote, to empower, to come alongside, to reign in such a way that trust is created and worship follows along. Because God is the God who keeps his promises, he's the God who can be trusted by us. And his hope is actually that this gets reproduced in his children. This actually becomes the very character not only of God, but of those who've been caught up in his kingdom, that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Jesus tells us as followers of him to let our yes be yes and our no be no, to let our word be trusted, to be able to speak in ways that people actually can trust what it is that we're saying. One of my professors in seminary, a woman by the name of Christine Pohl, wrote a book on living into community. And what she was talking about is how Christian community is sustained, how it's formed, and how it actually sustains its life in the world. And she says it's actually sustained by the combination of four practices, hospitality, gratitude, truth-telling, and promise-keeping. The communities are sustained when we can actually make and keep promises to one another. Think about the Christian tradition. A lot of the ceremonies that surround community for us, that surround life in the church, whether we're talking about baptisms, or we're talking about child dedications, or we're talking about things like marriages, what are we doing in the midst of those ceremonies? We're recognizing the promises that God has made to us, first and foremost. We're, we're looking at the story. We're looking at all that God has said and all that God has done, and we're, we're reminding ourselves. We're getting caught up in that story, and then we're turning to one another, and we're making promises to each other. And that community that gets created around those things is sustained by the making and the keeping of promises. We know this to be true. Think about all the times that you might have maybe in a friendship or maybe in a family situation or maybe in some connection that you have in employment or in a neighborhood. Think about all the times that someone has kept their promise to you, kept their word to you. Even maybe when you forgot that they made the promise but they came through with it anyway. There's something about that that causes trust to be sort of build up inside of us. And every time we do that for one another, trust gets created and the fabric of community gets woven tighter and tighter and tighter together. 
This is actually what holds and sustains marriages is the making and keeping of promises. What causes kids to flourish is when they know that their parents' word can be trusted, that mom and dad are going to do what it is they said they're going to do. Our friendships are based on the sense we're looking for loyal friends, friends that do what they say they are going to do. Even in other relationships, whether it's in education or in politics or in business, we're always looking for who is it that we can trust. And the invitation, of course, to the people of God is, are we those people? Are we the kind of people who can be trusted, who live our lives and lead the people that we get to lead or influence the people that we get to influence in the way of God, in the way of Jesus, that we keep our promises in order to produce trust? We're going to jump ahead to Matthew 14 and look at one of the other brothers this is the story of Herod Antipas, verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the ruler, so Archelaus' uh, half-brother, this is Herod Antipas, heard the news about Jesus. And he said to his servants, well, this just must be John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why all these miraculous powers are at work through him. And then we get the backstory about what has happened to John the Baptist. Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. Now, if you think the family thing that you're going to for the holidays is a bit dysfunctional, (laughs) someone has just told one brother, you can't marry the other brother's wife. That's the kind of dysfunction that's happening. And that's what John says to Herod. You can't do this. It's unlawful for you to marry her. What we see in the story of Herod Antipas is that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like his father before him, Antipas believes that he's above the law, that the rules don't apply to him, that either personally or because of his family or maybe even because of his position, that there is an exceptionalism here. Yes, all of those things are true for everybody else, but for me, the rules don't apply. For me, I am above those things. Yes, I understand that you're not supposed to marry your brother's wife, but come on, I'm Herod. I get to do whatever it is that I want to do. And so there's this sense for Herod and his kids that they're above the law so much so that anyone that wants to question that gets punished. They question those who are, they they punish those who question them or try to hold them to account. This is what John the Baptist tries. He speaks the truth. He upholds the law and he calls those in power to submit to the very laws that they claim to enforce. But it doesn't go well for John in doing that. This is a significant theme in Matthew as well, is what is one's relationship to the law? This is why Jesus comes in and immediately as he begins to speak, he says, don't misunderstand. I have not come to do away with the law, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. The New Testament reading from today says that Jesus came not as one who was above the law, but came as one under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law and to adopt us into his family. What we see in the difference between Jesus and Herod is this, that the Herod's arrogance leads to self-serving disobedience. But God's humility the God who was meek and became low that we sang about in that special music, but God's humility 
leads to self-sacrificial service. The way of Herod and his sons insists on their own way, even if it goes against the law, even if it actually violates commandments, even if it goes against what actually needs to be true for everybody else in their kingdom, they're going to insist on their own way. Everything in their mind exists for their own benefit, including the law. And if the law is no longer a benefit, then actually there is a way around it because after all, I'm a Herod and I get to do whatever I want to do. Everything gets exploited for their own gain. And we all know that story. We've all been in situations where someone in power, someone in influence, someone with resources became an exception to what was meant to be true for everybody. We saw the damage and the hurt that it caused us or caused others. But the way of God and the way of his son is drastically different. If you remember all the way back to the first week that we talked about this series, Pastor Glenn shared about how Jesus came to power. He didn't come to power by clawing his way to the top. But we see in Philippians chapter 2 is that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be exploited, something to be leveraged for his own benefits. But instead, he humbled himself. And he took on the very nature of a servant and he became obedient even to the point of death. Self-sacrificial service that follows humility. And as the children of God, this is the invitation to us as well, to humble ourselves and to submit to one another in love. The scripture invites us to think about any area of our lives, any relationships, any sort of spheres that we have where we have a particular amount of privilege or power, or position, or influence, places that we have resource, places that there is something about our presence there that actually makes a difference. And the scriptures are inviting us to always ask in those situations, are we humbling ourselves in love to serve those that we lead, to love those that we influence, to care for those who have been put under our care? When we think about our relationships with our spouses, we think about relationships with kids, we think about the students that come into our classrooms or the patients that come into our care at the hospital, we think about the customers and employees that come to work in our business or those that we're taking care of and representing in legal matters, or we're thinking about those that live in our neighborhood or those that God has drawn into our life to be able to disciple and to have some sort of connection with the kids that we volunteer with in the kids ministry, or the students in the student ministry, or all of these places that we find ourselves having an opportunity to lead, to love, and to, to be a part and to be an influence. And God's asking us, how are you leveraging that? Are you leveraging it like I did, which is humbly and self-sacrificial love or in another way? But the way of God, the way of his son, and the way of the children of God is a humility that leads to self-sacrificial service of others. Continue on Matthew 14, verse 5. It says, although Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd. Although Herod, the king, the ruler of this area, wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd because they thought John was a prophet. 
But at Herod's birthday party, Herodias' daughter danced in front of the guests and thrilled Herod. And then he swore to give her anything she asked. And at her mother's urging, the girl said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on the plate. And although the king was upset because of his solemn pledge and his guests, he commanded that they give it to her. It's really interesting that earlier in all the conversations that we've had about Herod and his sons, the crowds and individuals fear Herod. Herod reigns in such a way and his sons reign in such a way that they create fear all around them. But now the gospel writer lets us into this fact that Herod actually feared the crowds and that Herod feared the guests at his party. So what's actually often true is that those who control with fear are usually controlled by fear. And those who are attempting to create anxiety in everyone else, who seem to be just constantly leveraging everything for their own benefit, who are going about leading in a way that's causing disruption all around them, it's usually because there's actually something going on inside of them that they are deathly afraid of. And so the only thing they know to do is to actually try to manage their own fear by creating fear in other people. But what ends up happening in those situations is that that fear actually brings death to the person and to all of those around them. This is the way of Herod. The Herod's fear actually brings death. In this case, it brings death to John the Baptist. But we see the exact opposite with Jesus. God's compassion, on the other hand, brings life. The very next story says this. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds learned this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when they arrived and Jesus saw a large crowd, he feared them? No. He had compassion for them. And he killed them? No. And he healed those who were sick. When Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion for them. And he healed the sick. Jesus lives his entire life free of fear and full of compassion. So that when he sees the crowds, he responds the exact opposite way as as Herod does. When he sees the crowds, when he sees us, When Jesus sees you, he is full of compassion. That is God's disposition towards you. That when he sees you, when he sees us, he is full of compassion. Friends, God is not afraid of you. God is not angry with you. God is not disappointed by you. God is not disinterested in you. God is not displeased with you. God is not ignoring you. God is not indifferent to your existence. He is not unaware of everything that you're going through. He is not unaware of the pain and the hurt and the fear and the things that are going on in your life. What the scriptures remind us of over and over and over again is that God loves you. 
so that when God sees you, what bubbles up inside of him is compassion. Then when God sees you, he is moved with compassion. Jesus is looking right at you. And he sees all of you. He sees what other people don't see. He sees what you wish other people would see. He also sees what you're trying really hard to not let anyone else into. He sees it all. He even sees what you can't see about yourself. He sees all of you full and in living color. And when he sees you, he is moved with compassion. And when Jesus moves near to us in compassion, when Jesus moves near to us in compassion, he doesn't draw near to scold us. He doesn't draw near to shame us. He doesn't draw near to give us a lecture. He doesn't draw near to bring out the whole list of things that we didn't do right this year because we made it onto his naughty list. Jesus draws near to us in compassion in order to heal us. To come to us in all these places in a sermon like this where we go, actually, I've known a lot of Herods in my life. I had a parent who was a Herod. I had a teacher who was a Herod. I had a spouse who was a Herod. I had a boss who was a Herod. I've known a lot of these Herods. And this is where it's left me. And Jesus draws near with compassion to say to us, I'm not Herod. It's not the kind of king that I am. And he draws near to us to heal us. Or in those places where we say, actually, I know a Herod. I'm one. I have been that parent. I have been that spouse. I have been that friend. I have been that boss. I have been that coworker. I have been that neighbor. When Jesus sees us, because he sees all of us, he's moved with compassion and he comes near to us to forgive us, to heal us, to change us, to help us, to show us a new way of being in the world. As the band comes forward this morning, would you bow your heads with me? Would you just for a moment, as we prepare hearts to come to the table, remember the simple refrain that comes up over and over and over again in the Gospels, that when Jesus saw the crowds, when Jesus saw this person, when Jesus saw that person, when Jesus sees you, he's moved with compassion and he comes near and he comes near to heal. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.